in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You see, the reason that this phrase is so powerful is not because it's trying to emphasize the creation of the universe. It's trying to emphasize the one who owns it, the one who has control over it, the one who has infinite power over the universe. Look with me in Genesis. There are two stages in Genesis. Chapters 1 through 11. God created humans with the intent of them serving like priests in the world. Priests represent God to the world and the world to God. God created humans in His image so that they could properly represent God in this world. Humans, instead, they wanted to be like God instead of serving Him. They wanted to be God's themselves. They were forced out from God's inner sanctuary, the garden that was in Eden. After they went out, they had a son named Cain, who would eventually kill his brother and would be forced to go out even further from God's holy place. But the world continued to grow so evil after Cain went out that God had to wipe the world clean with water. He used Noah to save his family, Noah's family, and to bring a new start to the world. God would go on to make a covenant with Noah. This covenant said that he would not destroy the world like this again. He then blessed Noah and his sons, telling them to be fruitful and multiply and spread out all over the earth. However, the human problem of sin continued, plunging the human world even further away from God's throne. In Genesis 10, we see a list of names. This list is called the Table of Nations. Inside this list, we see a person named Nimrod who begins to be powerful and starts his own kingdom. Humans seem to have gained power and control over this world that God had created. And that's where we come to our passage. You see, in Genesis 11, 1 through 9, we're going to see the worst of the worst. But we're also going to see how this passage, these nine verses are crucial to the flow of the Old Testament, the New Testament, and today in our lives. This morning, we're going to read the scriptures. We're going to listen to the scriptures. We're going to reflect on these scriptures, and then we're going to apply these scriptures to our lives. Pray with me as we begin. Father, we seek you. God, we cry out that we need you. Every hour, Lord, we need you. And this morning as we read Genesis 11, Lord, we ask that you speak. Help us to listen. Lord, don't just let us listen. Let us do something about it. Let us apply this to our lives today. Let us be like you, Lord Jesus. Transform us, mold us, and shape us this morning to be like you. Jesus, in your name we pray. Amen. Genesis 11, verse 1. The whole earth had the same language and vocabulary. As people migrated eastward, they found a valley in the land of Shinar and settled there. The author begins by telling us that this group of people, they have the same language to describe how they're supposed to be seen as one people, one people group. 
And notice with me how it says they move eastward. From the time that Adam and Eve are removed from the Garden of Eden, in Genesis 1 through 11, people keep moving east. They keep moving east. In the youth group, we talked about how this is supposed to represent a movement away from God's presence in relation to the temple in Jerusalem. The temple in Jerusalem was facing the east. I have an example of this here. You can see the Holy of Holies in the outer sanctuary and the courts on the outside. If you walked west, you're going into the Holy of Holies. But if you walk east, you're going out from God's presence. Throughout Genesis 1 through 11, people keep moving east. They're going further and further out from God's presence. Now look at me with the geographical location the story tells us that this group of people stops at. It's called the Valley of Shinar. Now in Ezekiel chapter 28, we find out that the way that the ancient Israelite people thought about the Garden of Eden was that it was actually on a mountain. In this context of Ezekiel chapter 28, Ezekiel is lamenting the king of Tyre. God is lamenting the king of this country named Tyre. And notice how Ezekiel connects the Garden of Eden to a mountain. You were in Eden, the Garden of God. You were on the holy mountain of God. So I expelled you in disgrace from the mountain of God. If Adam and Eve started in the garden and they were removed from God's spiritual holy mountain, the only way off, only way off that mountain is down. So not only have the people kept moving eastward, they're going lower and lower and lower till now they're in the valley. The lowest of lows. The ultimate low spot. Let's go to verse 3. They said to each other, come, let's make oven-fired bricks. They use brick for stone and asphalt for mortar. The reason that the author puts this parentheses in there is because the ancient Israelite people, the Palestinian people, they would use stones and mortar to build instead of bricks and asphalt. So he's making a little note here. Verses, verse 4 says, And they said, Come, let's build ourselves a city and a tower with its head in the heavens. Let's make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered throughout the earth. Let's work through this going backwards. Their goal is to not be scattered. God commanded in Genesis 9, after Noah and his sons got off, be fruitful, multiply, and spread out across the earth. But they decided they don't want to. They don't want to. They believe that they can make a name for themselves. They won't have to be spread out. They believe that the reputation, their fame... Their work, it gives them the ability to reject God's control over their lives. God, I don't have to do that. They believe that their collective name, their infamy, their reputation secures them. Now let's look together at how they plan to do this. They want to build a city and a tower with its head in the heavens. Let's look at the city idea first. You see, this is not the first city that we see in Genesis. This is not the first city that we see in Genesis. When Cain is removed from Eden, he's cursed by God to be a wanderer upon the earth, but instead, you know what he does? He goes and builds a city. And this word for city is a word that denotes a city specifically with walls around it. 
this city was meant to keep people out. This city was meant to pit one group of people against another. This city implies human power from the inside ruling. Cain's city was, was built in rebellion and sin, the very first city. But in our story, who are these people responsible for this city? Look with me back in Genesis 10. Genesis 10 says this. Cush father Nimrod, who began to be powerful in the land. His kingdom started with Babylon, Erech, Akkad, and Kalna in the land of Shinar. Nimrod is pictured as the leader of these people who are building in the land of Shinar. Nimrod's kingdom began in direct opposition and defiance of God. He was supposed to go spread out over the world, but instead he starts his own kingdom. He's put human power against God's power. This kingdom he set up was in direct defiance of God in Genesis chapter 9. So this city, in the context of Genesis 1 through 11, signifies human rule and reign, human kingship, human opposition to God, human power against God's power. Let's go back to the slide of verses 3 through 5. Now, what about this tower that it mentions? It says, let's build a city and a tower with its head in the heavens. I want to read for you a document from ancient Babylon. I have a slide for you. This is from the second group of people to rule Babylon. This comes from a man named King Nabopolassar. He is actually the father of King Nebuchadnezzar, who shows up in the book of Daniel. Nabopolassar is recorded saying that he was commanded by Marduk, the chief god of the Babylonians, to build up this god's temple tower and to found its foundations in the heart of the underworld and cause its head to rival heaven. You see, the universe, we think of our universe as the heavens and the earth, but the way that they thought of it was two and three, heavens and the earth. But there's also this third part, everything under the earth, which they lump into the earth. So you have the heavens, the actual land, the earth, and everything under the earth. Nabopolassar is saying that they're going to build a temple tower, a temple tower for a god who's the head, the head of this temple is going to be in the heavens. The same word head. Watch this. And you see that the reason this is important for the temple tower's head to be in the sky is because at the very top of this tower, it's not a roof the way we think of it. It's an idol. You see, at the very top of this temple tower is a throne. Is a throne. That throne belongs to the deity it was built for. By the temple tower having its top, its head in the heavens, you are elevating that deity to the highest position, saying, it rules this world. The heavens, the earth, and everything under the earth. It rules. It reigns. It has power. It has control. You are establishing your deity as the chief deity. This temple tower acted like a giant billboard to the rest of the world, proclaiming who your deity is, and how they are the one in control. 
Nabopolassar's statement gives us great insight into understanding this passage. Let's look back at the scriptures. Notice that these people, they want to build a city and a tower with its head in the heavens, but it's not for another deity though. No, it's not. It's not to raise up another God's name. It's for them. It's for their name to be lifted up. It's for their name to be lifted high. And if you think back with me, the reason Eve took from the tree is because she wanted to be a God. She, Adam wanted to be a God. He, they are building this to proclaim their name as God's. People who have direct opposition to the actual God. They can rule their own lives. They don't need this other God. They're trying to replace God's rule in their lives. God's kingdom with their own kingdom. Let's go to verse 5. Then the Lord came down to look over the city and the tower that the humans were building. The Lord said, if they had begun to do this as one people, all having the same language, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let's go down there and confuse their language so that they will not understand one another's speech. So the Lord comes down to see what they're doing. He sees it and he notices that the reason that they're able to do this is because they have the same language. It's because they have the same language. But the reason that they're actually doing this has nothing to do with the language. It has to do with their hearts. It says in verse 6, if they had begun to do this as one people all having the same language, nothing they plan to do will be impossible. This plan to do idea shows up elsewhere in the Old Testament, and it typically refers to evil intent. You see, it was their hearts. That was the issue. It wasn't the language. It was their hearts. Their goal, this goal was the evil intent of glorifying their own names, of rejecting God. And instead of saying God is the one who rules and reigns, who is king over this entire world, it's us. They reject the God who puts breath in their lungs. And notice with me how it says the Lord actually comes down twice. He says, verse 5, then the Lord came down. And then he gets down there and he's like, oh, we got to go even further down. Let's go further down. Do you guys hear the movement downwards? It's the lowest of lows. It's the lowest of lows. And this is the crazy thing. You see, God decided not to change their hearts right then. He didn't want to destroy them that time. Instead, he just confused their languages so that they couldn't pursue evil together. God, you could have fixed it all right then, right? Just changed their hearts then. But God had made a promise. If you remember back to Noah, I won't do this again. Let's go on to the final two verses. So from there, the Lord scattered them throughout the earth, and they stopped building the city. Therefore, it is called Babylon. For there the Lord confused the language of the whole earth, and from there the Lord scattered them throughout the earth. So from that city, the Lord did the scattering. You see, they try to, they try to hold up there and say, let's do this so that we don't have to spread out. 
But then God comes and makes them spread out because God's will will be done. Who is actually in control here? It's still God. It's still God. And now we finally see the name of this city. It's the great wicked city of Babylon that shows up from this passage all the way to the end of Revelation. You see, Babylon's name, the the name actually means gate of God. That's what Babylon means. But our author says, mockingly, your name does not mean that. No, it means confusion. And it should be a reminder of your evil intent to defy the God of the universe. That's what your name, that's what your name really means. So now let's reflect on this passage. Let's reflect on this passage. You see, there's actually two main ideas here that go from this passage through the rest of the Old Testament into the New Testament and to us today. The first idea is this. We need to sit and reflect on the idea of a city. You see, this city was built in direct defiance of God. This city was built out of sin to establish human rule, human kingdoms, human power. But brothers and sisters, I have great news for you. There is another city in our story that we do not see. We do not see. The next section after this genealogy leads to Abraham. Leads to Abraham. And you see our New Testament writers pick up on this in the book of Hebrews. Look with me in Hebrews chapter 11. It says this. It was by faith that Abraham obeyed when God called him to leave home and to go to another land that God would give him as his inheritance. He went without knowing where he was going. And even when he reached the land God promised him, he lived there by faith. For he was like a foreigner living in tents. And so did Isaac and Jacob who inherited the promise. And listen to this. Abraham was confidently looking forward to a city with eternal foundations, a city designed and built by God. It's incredible. It's incredible that Abraham follows this story in Genesis 11. And there's no mention in the Old Testament, in Genesis, that Abraham was walking towards a city. But our New Testament writers noticed it immediately. And you see this city, this is the city where God rules, where he has power, where his domain is never questioned. It's never rivaled. And Abraham walked that direction. The very end of our Bibles, Revelation ends with God's city being the final resting place of God's people. A resting place with God, where the enemies of God, the people who want to build a name for themselves, reputation, They're destroyed. They're destroyed. And God's city is the one remaining city, the one true city. And it's big enough for as many people as it'll fit who come to God. This leads us to our second idea, the second idea from this passage. You see, in our Genesis 11 story, the people thought that building up their name and reputation, by doing that, they would be safe. Their name and reputation would keep them from God's judgment. But what they didn't realize, and this is just incredible, what they didn't realize, that long before they showed up, God was already building a name for himself. After Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, God told the serpent that he would raise up a single descendant of Eve to crush the serpent's head. 
And you spend the next few chapters in Genesis trying to identify who the descendant is. Actually, the firstborn of Eve, you're thinking, maybe this is the one. Maybe this is the seed, the descendant that's going to crush and save. But he ends up being a murderer. And so you're looking, you're looking, you're looking. And we come to Noah, and he gets the people through the flood, but then he falls back into the cycle of sin. But then one of Noah's sons show up. The son was named Shem. In Hebrew, the word Shem means name. The, the guy was named name. When the people in Babylon tried to build a name for themselves, the Hebrew word they use there is Shem. They tried to build a Shem for themselves. But God had began the process of making his own name long before they showed up. You see the passage immediately following the Tower of Babel, the Tower of Babylon, is a genealogy of Shem that leads to Abraham. Through Shem comes Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then King David. And then we crack open the first page of the New Testament. Matthew, page one, verse one, the first sentence. You know what it says? An account of the genealogy of Jesus Christ the son of David, the son of Abraham, the son of Shem, the son of Adam. This is where history is going. And there in the name of Jesus, true salvation is found. Acts 4.12 says this, there is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven that a person can be saved by. Only that name. The people in Babylon were building up their city and tower as a way to find salvation outside of God's commands. Maybe if we build this up, God will just leave us alone and we'll be good. We'll be fine. He'll let us be. They wanted to be outside of God's rule, God's kingship. But God orchestrated all of time, all of space to give humanity one name, one name that they could be saved by one name. And this is where we sit and we apply this passage to our lives today. In closing, there are two groups here. Two groups. The first group here is not headed towards that city. That one true city of God. You are headed towards death and punishment for your own sin. You belong to the city of Babylon. You belong to the city of Babylon. There's only one way into the city of God, into God's loving presence, and it's not by your name. You see, nothing you will ever be able to do, no kind of reputation you build, no kind of businesses that you create and you have your name up there, no matter what your business card looks like, No matter how thick your wallet is, nothing you ever do, nothing you can ever accomplish by your name will ever be good enough to get into this city. This city belongs to one name, and it's not yours. You see, God made a way to this city by sending his son Jesus 
to die on the cross on behalf of my sin, on behalf of your sin. And whoever places their faith, their trust, their loving obedience, their confidence in this name, Jesus, in this person, Jesus, they will have eternal life. Jesus died on behalf of my sin and he rose again from the grave so that I could have a new life. I no longer have to be a citizen of Babylon. I can now be a citizen of God's city. Romans 5 and 10 says it best. For a while we were still helpless at the right time. Jesus Christ died for the ungodly. He died for me. For rarely will someone die for a just person, a good person. Though for a good person, perhaps someone might even dare to die. But God proves his own love for us. And now while we were still sinners, Jesus Christ died for us. And then you might ask, how do I believe? How do I enter this city? I hear these words, but what do I do about it? Romans 10 the simplest answer in the entire universe. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, not Josh Laddie, that Jesus is King, not Josh Laddie, that Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God rose him from the dead to give you new life, you will be saved. And the crazy thing about salvation is this. It's never, ever, ever based on a prayer that you might pray. It's based on a person. His name is Jesus. You may have prayed a prayer when you were in fifth grade 20 years ago. But you are a citizen of Babylon. Your citizenship never changed because you never grabbed a hold of Jesus. Jesus is salvation. His name is salvation. Him only. Call upon the name of Jesus. Believe that he rose from the dead to secure you a new life, and you have become a child of God. The second group here are those who have been called, those who have called upon the name of Jesus already, and you're living this new life, and you're looking forward to God's glorious city with him on the throne and no one else. And if you're a part of the second group, I have one thing for you. The same thing that Paul says for us in Philippians chapter 1. He says, just this one thing. As citizen of God's city, live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. You see those words, as citizen of God's city, live your life? In Greek, it's one word. It's one word. And this one word is built off of the Greek word polis. This Greek word polis is where we get our words politics, police, metropolitan, polity. Paul is commanding us to be citizens of God's city right now. That city is coming, but you belong to it right now. Live your life like it. Live your life like you are under the submission of one name. I don't live my life no longer by Josh's rules, Josh's way of life. That's what Paul is saying. He's telling me, Josh, don't live your life under your 
authority anymore. Live it under the authority and the expectations of Jesus. How do we do that? One of the biggest questions. How do I do that? How do I do that? Paul tells us actually, right after he says this in Philippians, he tells us exactly how we're supposed to do this. Literally, exactly how. What I'm gonna do is, I'm gonna have you bow your heads and I'm gonna read this passage over us in closing. I'm gonna read this passage over us. So please, bow your heads with me and reflect on these words. Hear the word of God this morning. Hear the word from Philippians chapter two. As Paul tells us to be citizens of God's city. Citizens who don't glorify their own name, but they glorify the name of Jesus. Bow your heads with me as I read this passage. This is from Philippians 2. Reflect on these words. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Is there any encouragement from belonging to Christ? Is there any comfort from having God's love? Is there any fellowship that you have together in the Spirit? Are your hearts tender and compassionate? If they're not, then make me truly happy by agreeing wholeheartedly with each other, loving one another, and working together with one mind and purpose. Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble thinking of others as better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus himself had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to, something to take advantage of. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave, and he was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God, and he died a criminal's death on a cross. Therefore, God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father this is the word of the Lord thanks be to God